We're going to read from God's Word again, so could you take your Bibles? Now, our reading this morning, I could do from, uh, this evening, I could do from memory. It is only four words, but we're going to turn there anyway. So could you turn to Exodus chapter 20, and that is page 78 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews. And once you're there, stick a finger in that, and we're also going to turn to Matthew chapter 5 straight after. So in preparation for that, Matthew chapter 5, and that's on page 969. So first of all, Exodus. So here is commandment number 6, very short. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder, God says. Now turn to Matthew chapter 5. And here is Jesus commenting on these verses, interpreting them for us. He's going to help us out in Matthew 5. And we're going to start at verse 21 on page 969. So here is Jesus speaking on that very command. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it whilst you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We're going to come and look at those words together in a moment. If you're going to have a passage open in front of you, which is a good thing to do, I'd go to Matthew 5, if I were you. You can remember Exodus 20. But before we turn to look at this together, we're going to pray. I'm very aware of my need of God's help, as we all are. So let's pray to him. Our Father in heaven, it is a fool, your word says, who looks in your mirror and having looked, immediately forgets what he looks like. Please keep us from that folly tonight. As we listen to your word, your perfect law, may we not forget what we hear, but may we do what it says. And please give us the freedom that it promises. And please help me to have simplicity and godly sincerity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? You are my queen. The fairest of them all. Wouldn't it be great to have a mirror like that that every morning declared your supreme beauty? I think that would be a good thing. Sometimes looking in a mirror can be something which excites us and thrills us. It can be a good thing. Think of the bride-to-be who eventually gets to go shopping for her dress and she goes into the shop after shop after shop and finally she finds that dress to die for 
and she tries it on and emerges and stands with her mum before the mirror and both of them burst into tears of ecstasy. Because what reflects is just stunning. It can be a good thing. There's a great episode of Only Fools and Horses where Del Boy wakes up one morning, stares into the mirror and says, Suvu play, Suvu play. What an enigma. I get better looking every day, he says. I can't wait for tomorrow. <laughs> but undoubtedly, for, them, for some of us, looking into the mirror can sometimes be a terrifying thing. Uh, it can reveal another spot, um, baggier eyes, another wrinkle, more gray hairs. And it can be an enemy to be avoided in the mornings. Why do we fill our houses with mirrors? Sometimes you can get home from work and catch a glimpse and see that the coronation chicken you had for lunch is still making an appearance. <laughs> True story of this week. Um, <laughs> but this, these Sunday nights, we have been looking at God's Ten Commandments. Tonight we come to number six. And we have been using them with our purpose to be holding up, up in front of us like a mirror and saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, how fair are we? How do we reflect? Do they reveal us to be fairest of them all or do they actually reveal spots and wrinkles, blemishes, failures and uh, offenses? And it may be that tonight, as we reach commandment six, we sigh in relief. Finally, one that I've got a clean slate on. Safe. And it may be that Every week we've been slightly discouraged and we come to tonight and if indeed these pews were comfortable, you could sit back in the comfort of your own pew and even let out a little complacent chuckle. Well, please, can I ask that you do not let any potential complacency blur your vision tonight as we look into God's words. Let me map out where we're going tonight and then we'll walk it together. So we're going to do three things. We're going to first look into this mirror and see what it reflects of the God who gave this command. After that, we're going to hold up the mirror, as it were, to our culture and see how Scottish society does in this mirror of the sixth commandment. And then finally, we're going to narrow our focus to ourselves. Okay, how do, how do we get on? If you like, from macrocosm to microcosm. God, then our culture, and then us. So first of all, what does... This command reveal about the God who gives it. Well, ultimately, do not murder, you shall not murder, reveals that God of the Bible is the Lord of life. He himself is life, never had a beginning, will never have an end. He just always is. And he delights not only in his own life, but he delights to give life to others. And so we see him in the opening chapters of the Bible, not only creating physical creatures, but breathing life into them. This Lord of life is the Lord who gives every life. Every breath that you breathe is a divine gift from his breath. Ever thought of that? There you go, he says. There you go. Have another one. There you go. Demands a certain humility, doesn't it? This Lord of life sustaining you with every breath. And from him in this creation, there is not one accidental heartbeat. 
but every single one given by this Lord of life. Life is his business from the one who is life in himself. Now, it is worth just pausing at this moment to acknowledge that this is a good thing. It is a good thing that at the center of the universe, behind everything, there is a personal Lord for life. If you surrender yourself to the worldview of an atheistic evolution, then you surrender yourself to and place at the heart of this universe an import personal force for death. Death becomes absolutely integral and a necessary part of this creation. Your death will actually serve the evolutionary process, so speed your death. That worldview gives no place for grieving at death. It gives no explanation for the emotional sadness that we cannot escape when death comes. And it promises no uh, stopping of this death process. You better get used to it because it's not going anywhere. Do you know in splendid contrast to that, the God of the Bible, the Lord of life, is at the center of this universe. He is a glorious Lord of life. And he explains death to us. And he comforts us in death. And as we'll see later on, he actually defeats death. Death was not in his original. It will not be in his final. So don't get comfy with death. It's not staying long. Because he is the Lord of life. Now is the Lord of life with this ability to give life, with the might to give life, also comes the authority and the right to take it away. And that is his alone. He alone has the might to give it. And so he is the only one who can determine when that life can be taken away. See, this God who gives is also the God who gloriously protects human life. Do you see that in this negative command, you shall not murder, it reveals a glorious truth about God. That he is the glorious Lord of life who protects humanity by saying, you shall not murder them. God has placed a special value on humanity. He has instilled you with an amazing worth. And he alone has made humanity alone a specially, divinely protected species. Because he has made you, set you apart, set you above the rest of the creation by making you in his image. You are not just one step further along the evolutionary process. No, you are profoundly and essentially different from a monkey. Because you were made in the image of God. He made you to be like him. He made you, because he is the Lord of life, to be a Lord under him. To rule over creation. You have phenomenal value from this Lord of life. And so he protects you by saying to others, you shall not murder them. Gives us great dignity doesn't it? We're not just monkeys. 
We are those made in the image of God. Yes, humble because he has given us every breath, but with great dignity, a humble dignity, you are amazingly valuable, made by this Lord of life in his image. You see, there is one fundamental reason why I am not a vegetarian. Because bacon rolls taste unbelievable. But there is one fundamental reason why I am not a cannibal. Because the Lord of life has made humanity in his image. And so he has protected humanity, especially by saying, whoever sheds the blood of men, by men shall his blood be shed. You see the, the phenomenal truth of this this negative command that you are protected by the powerful, sovereign, good God of life. You are precious to him. And so he protects against the unjust taking of innocent life by saying, you shall not murder. What a great backdrop we have as we start to look at this command. A Lord of life. So let's take this mirror then and hold it up to our culture. And actually, I think what is reflected is actually pretty dark. I think that from various witnesses, from different perspectives, we rightly earn the title. We merit the name, a culture of death. This is obvious from the fact that the command, do not murder, is just necessary. As population has increased, well, proportionately to that, murder rates have increased. Murders don't make the news anymore. It has to be a mass murder, a terrorist threat to make the front page because we're so used to it. I found out this week that do not murder is one of the 21 precepts for the common sense guide to better living. If it's so common sense, why do we need the command? It seems that there is something more common than sense. That for some reason, this evades and escapes common sense. I think you see it also in the fact that we're becoming a society of suicide. Do you see the news this week about East Belfast? This suicide trend among Young people, it's horrific, sad. I heard someone commenting on the radio that suicide is becoming not the last resort for young people these days. Suicide's seen as a first resort. What kind of culture is that? See, the Sixth Commandment gives no exceptions for self-murder. I think also exposed in this mirror is our own Scottish Parliament. This past year, they have been trying to push through this bill called the End of Life Choices Bill, seeking to legalize assisted suicide, euthanasia. The Lord of Life says, I protect life, and we are trying to push through a bill that does the exact opposite, taking life. God sets no standards for a quality of life that gives someone an obligation to or a right to life. But he has value in every life. He cares for those who suffer and who are disabled. They are no less valuable than anyone in full health. What kind of culture is this? 
there's no doubt too that this glance in the mirror reveals our habits of abortion. The glorious truth of this Lord of life is that his protection of life extends even to the unborn child. Later on in Exodus, God's law will provide special protection, not only for a pregnant mother, but also for the unborn child in her womb. That child is a person with every right, as much claim to God's protection as any other human being. Right through the Bible, these babies in the womb are spoken of as fully personal. David himself speaks of his own life with a consistency from conception to in the womb to being born right through to his old age. The implications of this command are necessarily pro-life. And yet how our culture differs from that. In Scotland alone, in 2008, 14,000 babies were aborted. From 1968 until now, well over 400,000. That is almost the population of Edinburgh. Our culture renders this as a guiltless act. But God's word exposes us as guilty. Now I'm very aware that these issues can be very real and very raw. And maybe so to some here tonight. But let me please say, stick with us. Keep listening. We're going to get to the great truth that this Lord of life, his protection extends not only to an unborn child, but his love, his care, and his concern extends to those who weep and mourn, even those who weep and mourn when they see their guilty reflection in his law. There is great hope. There is great truth in God's words. But before we narrow the sights further to ourselves, I I think it's worth exposing a few more cultural trends in our society that show us our perversity around this command. And before I do that, let me explain something further about the command, you shall not murder. This command does not only prohibit the actual taking of a human life, but actually it prohibits anything that leads up to that, on that trajectory, if you like. Anything that harms life rather than protects it. Let me explain one illustration. When I was growing up, if I hit my sister, hypothetical, if I, if I punched my sister, my mum would say to me, Andy, do not punch Emily. Now, when my mum gave that uh, command, that did not leave the door open to anything leading up to a punch. That did not mean that I could bite her, pinch her, pull her hair, call her names, kick her, as long as I didn't punch her. No, that command was like an umbrella command that prohibited anything on the trajectory up to punching Emily. Do you get that? And so to this command, do not murder, well, under that comes anything that is on the trajectory to murder. Anything that harms life rather than protects it like the Lord of life. Now think about our Scottish culture and that reflection. How often do we harm 
I mean, just think of some of the harm we cause ourselves, whether it's in obesity. We're known for that as a nation. Or what about drug abuse or alcoholism? Or what about sectarian football violence? Or what about domestic abuse? I mean, I could go on. Truth is, we're not, we're not doing great in this mirror. You extend it beyond that to the world at large, and you see our perversity even more, I think. You know this, there is a new kind of genre of films and television that has arisen, which is basically comedy violence. We've taken violence to be something that entertains us. And I've, I've been really convicted by this. Uh, this is probably mainly for the younger folk, but you know films like Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead? What about TV shows like Jackass that actually exalt pain and laugh at murder? How perverse a culture. I mean, it extends to the gaming world. You know, games like Grand Theft Auto, they exalt reckless driving and exuberant violence. It's very perverse. It's very sad that we would exalt in such things. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Well, not us. Not us. And it could be easy for us to say, well, it's, it's, it's quite relatively easy to look at culture and slam it because it's kind of one step removed from us. But the truth is, what is true at the level of macrocosm is only true because of what is real at the level of microcosm. The multitude of our culture is made up of individual human lives, like me and like you. And God's word says, it is out of the overflow of our hearts that these actions come. And the mirror of God's word does not only expose our outward actions, but it actually cuts through and lays bare our inward attitudes. Think back to the illustration about me and my sister and the punching thing. When my mom said, do not punch Emily... She wasn't just seeking to reform the outward action. She actually desired my heart. That negative command, do not punch Emily, actually meant my mom was saying, Andy, I want you to love your sister. I want your heart. And so too, when God gives this negative command, do not murder, he is teaching us also that he he hates the root of murder, which is in my heart. See, he he hates the first thought of hatred in here. He hates the first intention of revenge in here. He hates the anger which simmers in here. He wants the heart. Murder is never just the final action, is it? It always starts in the individual life. And God's law, as we stand before this mirror tonight, exposes the root as well as the fruits. Remember the words of Jesus commenting on this? You can see them in Matthew 5. He says, anyone, anyone who is angry, anyone who's angry will be subject to judgment. You ever been angry? (laughs) How easy is it to be angry? (laughs) How easy is it just to flip to that simmering inside? 
Have you ever caught yourself just plotting someone's revenge? Even fantasizing about how you would get your own back on someone. I was convicted again this week how easy I find this. I was driving on Wednesday night in a rush to get somewhere, just pulled out my house. The next turning, a learner driver pulls out in front of me. Nightmare. They stall at every opportunity on the way. And it just so happens they seem to be going exactly the same place. And before I knew it, I'm breathing out murderous threats against this sky blue Nissan Micra. And it struck me, how easy is it for our hearts to turn to anger? How easy is it for us, just at the littlest of things, to spark off to even murderous thoughts? And that is a trivial example, but the truth is, it is from hearts such as this that a culture such as that emerges. The trajectory is from me. The line of consistency is from me to this perverse culture. It is out of the overflow of our hearts that our actions spring. Some of us are prone to the more physical abuse. We just fly off the handle. And before we know it, we've done something we regret. Some of us are more subtle. We just blank people in our anger. Just block them out. Don't give them a second. Some of us have, you know the phrase, if looks could kill. Some of you have those looks. Some of us are more like verbal snipers. And we wound people with our words. Remember Jesus again interpreting this command? Remember what he says. Anyone who says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. He's not mentioning his words there. Anyone. You ever call someone a fool? Idiot, you muppet. I mean, we've seen it this week. You ginger rodent. See, it is so universal. From active injury to passive apathy to harboring hatred... This mirror just smashes our complacency, doesn't it? Think about your words. Think about the way you drive. Think about your apathy to those who are in need. Is your life more taking life, endangering life, or does it protect like the Lord of life? Why do we need this command? Why do we need this amazing protection from the Lord of life? Because the thing that is more common than sense is sin. And it, it is in everyone's hearts. No one escapes. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? Well, not me. <laughs> and not you. But there is one more charge that stands against humanity as a whole. Our reflection is not yet complete. There is one more thing. One more murder. A murder that stands at the center point of all human history. A horrible rigged trial. An innocent life hung on a tree. The murder of one who was fairest of them all. Never injured life was never apathetic in protecting life, 
Far from it. He was the opposite. He went around and he healed the sick and he, he cared for the vulnerable. He even raised the dead. And yet when the murderous hearts of humanity were confronted with this Jesus, well, in their hearts they hated him. And they started to plot against him. And then they strung him up, murdering him on a tree. And as we read in Acts 2 that Liam read to us earlier, after the resurrection of Jesus, after his ascension to Jesus, Peter says to the crowd, listen to me. This, this man, Jesus, whom God handed over to wicked men, whom you crucified, well, God has raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep a hold of him. Be assured of this, Peter says. This Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And you know when the people heard that that day, when they were confronted with the mirror of God's word, and when they saw that they were guilty before the sixth commandment, they were cut to the heart. They were conscience-stricken. And he cried out, what shall we do? Peter, what can be done for people who are convicted of this commandment? Well, Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. There is a way for those who have broken the sixth commandment to be forgiven. And it came through the death of the one whom we are guilty of hanging on a tree. See, breakers of the sixth commandment rightfully deserve death. Although the Lord of life delights in life, it is a measure of the seriousness of sin that death is its consequence. I deserve to be given death. I deserve the agony of death. I deserve for death to grip me. And yet, God gives Jesus over to wicked men to die the death of a murderer. And as Jesus is given death, he simultaneously gives me life. As Jesus suffers the agony of the cross, he is at the same time protecting me from that agony. As death grips him, he is at that time protecting me from that grip of death. Death cannot extend, extend its arms to grip me as it grips Jesus. There's a great illustration of this in the Gospels. Jesus' trial, Pilate is fudging. He's trying to get Jesus off. And so he says to the crowd, tell you what, I'll either give you Jesus or I'll give you Barabbas. But one of them is going to hang on a tree. Do you want me to set free Jesus, this innocent man? Or do you want me to set free Barabbas, this murderer? And again, the perversity of man's heart. They cry, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. And on that day, Barabbas walks free 
as he sees Jesus hanging on his cross. And so too, for me, a breaker of the sixth commandment, as Jesus hangs on my cross, I can walk free. And then three days later, God raises him from the dead to say, forgiveness is achieved and it is available. I hope that tonight some of us have been convicted before our reflection in this mirror. For some, it may be remorse over the state of our nation. For some of us, it may be conviction of that hatred in our hearts that we may have harbored for a long time. For some of us, it may be the guilt of physical abuse. Indeed, for some, it may even be the sorrow of abortion. Well, can I say to you like Peter did listen to this? Forgiveness is available. As God gives to you the death of Jesus so that he might give you life. The one way to release you from that conviction. The one way to free you from that guilt. He gives you his perfection as your, as, gives you Jesus's perfection as your guilt is laid upon him. And he gives you life as Jesus is given death. It is a measure of the seriousness of sin that death is its consequence, but it is a measure of the greatness of God's grace that eternal life is the consequence of the gospel. The question you should be asking is, well, what must I do to be saved? Peter, what must I do? Well, my answer is the same as his. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Admit your sorrow over your sin to God. Confess, acknowledge your guilt before him in the mirror of his law. And then repent, radically reorganize, radically reorientate your life away from this culture of death and towards the Lord of life. It fascinated me this week, timing-wise, that in the week we're looking at You Shall Not Murder, in the headlines on Friday was the line, murder life sentences questioned. Did you see that on Friday? But it seems that in our judicial system, up for debate is the murder sentences for first, second, and third degree murders. Now, now is not the time, and this is not the place to go into that, but it does serve to underline the point that one day we will stand before a judge before whom the sentence for breakers of this commandment is not up for discussion. It is not a subjective thing. And you will stand before him. Not only your outward actions laid bare, but your inward attitudes. And my pleading with you is like Peter's. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Be saved in the name of Jesus Christ who gives you life by taking your death. Let's pray together.